Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. COVID takes its toll on the healthcare system, on the economy, on the markets, on us all. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. And the markets this week may have given just a little bit of a hint of a reaction to that continuing threat from COVID. As equities move down at least a bit, with the S&P 500 having its worst week since June, dropping every day in this holiday-shortened week. But Treasury yields, on the other hand, actually rose a bit, although it wasn't clear whether that was about risk appetite or increased supply. To take us through what the markets are trying to tell us, we welcome now Rick Reeder. He's BlackRock CIO for Fixed Income and head of its global allocation team, and Afsani Beshloss, Rock Creek founder and CEO. So, Afsani, let me start with you. Uh, were the markets reacting to COVID, do you think? What do you think happened this week? You know, it was sort of uh, back to school, and um, COVID obviously has been a problem, but it seemed like it really uh, came to hit people as if it's not going away. And, um, and it's with us, it's it, uh, impacting not just markets, but uh, we've had Dr. Fauci on, you've had him on. And, uh, and now we're moving not just from the Delta variant, but uh, potentially other variants. So the market is starting to be concerned about that. The also um, other big uh, item, which uh, is the other big elephant in the room that started impacting markets more this week was obviously things like inflation, the big growth numbers that got adjusted from uh, from much higher numbers to much lower numbers, whether we were looking at Fed numbers or Goldman or Morgan Stanley or other numbers. So I think all of those came together mm-hmm. this week. So, so Rick, let's pick up exactly where Afsani was, because I was going to ask about Goldman and Morgan Stanley, the various numbers that are coming in. Uh, do you anticipate growth may actually not be as fast as we thought it was going to be because of COVID? And if so, how do you take that into account as an investor? Mm-hmm. So I think there's two things that are slow in growth today that are, uh, and, I, you know, you, it's hard to always, you know, we try and simplify things in, into component parts, which is always hard to do. But I think there are two things. One, 
you have to clearly COVID and and you look at parts of the travel sector and leisure restaurants, et cetera, there's clearly some caution that's that's coming to the system that's created some growth slowdown. However, the biggest driver of growth slowdown by far, and, and quite frankly, more than anything I've ever seen, is supply. There's not enough supply of product. This actually demand, if you look at the economy, what happening and you see this in all the earnings reports too so in the home builders this week you see in the autos virtually every auto company talk about semiconductor supply shortage it's actually a remarkable thing it's not demand demand is actually as high as i've ever seen it now there's some transition because of covid into things that are online etc but it's actually supply companies can't fulfill the demand and so a bunch of what's impacted some of the equities of these companies is that they just can't get the goods they can't get the input they can't get the labor and that's been, the, been, quite frankly, the most extraordinary thing I've seen in my career, 35 years of doing this. I've never seen where the economy modulate demand, uh, and what the central banks are do is modulate demand, but it's actually supply that's, uh, that's creating this dynamic today. Okay, so Rick, let me commit heresy in financial journalism. Is it possible we're paying too much attention <laughs> to the Fed, given that? Because as you just suggested, the Fed can't do a whole lot about supply. I mean, it's, it's actually remarkable, because when a piece of economy economic data comes out, like the employment data, and the kind of like the number last uh, this, this last week came in a bit softer. There were some reasons why it came in softer, including some of the seasonal, some of the education jobs that will take a bit of time to come in. But there's a knee-jerk reaction in markets because this is the way we've operated for decades. Softer data, oh my God, we need central bank policy. The fact of the matter is quantitative easing is not doing anything to create, to create any, any uh, increase in supply chain. It's not doing anything to actually increase the supply of labor. The unemployment benefits rolling off will. The summer ending, will people come back to work, that will. But monetary policy has actually no influence. It modulates demand, but we don't need to modulate demand today. We've got this incredible tailwind. CapEx spending, R&D spending from companies, consumer that is has cash on hand, is, is delevered, their house is in, is in great shape, it's a big part of the wealth component. So, Afsani, I don't know if it's supplier demand, but we're certainly getting news out of Beijing. We got more news this week, as we have President Xi really clamping down on one part of his industry after another. What is going on and what is it telling investors? Is China investable right now? You know, a lot of investors are looking at China really carefully and wondering whether it's time to maybe go neutral or reduce or take the uh, feet off the pedal at the moment. Um, now, that may or may not make a big difference because foreign investors in China may only account, depending on which Chinese market you're looking at, anything from 5 to 25% approximately of the total market. So they will, there will be an impact. And obviously, the Chinese want that uh, foreign investment in their market, both private and public markets. But it's really interesting. I think the thing to me that was the most worrisome was not all the things we've been reading about on uh, clampdowns. Maybe they do need better regulation of their stock markets and across the board, uh, all the markets in China. But when they said they're going to start having government ownership in certain companies, whether it's DD or others, it's sort of, I don't want to take it back to Putin and, Germ and, and Russia, but you know, it does remind you a little bit of a very different scenario and uh, that can be very, very worrisome if that trend continues. Uh, at the same time, let's not forget, as uh, Rick was saying and you were saying, David, uh, and a friend of the program has recently written, Dan Jurgen, on supply chain problems, the ports, right, whether you're looking at China, whether you're looking in mm -hmm. California, our railways, um, they're all clocked, right? So regardless of what agreements are made between the two countries, 
those are not going away unless we have a really good infrastructure bill here and start building infrastructure, but that's going to take a few years. That's Rock Creek CEO Afsani Beshlos and BlackRock CIO of Fixed Income Rick Reeder. Coming up, the roundtable stays with us as we continue our conversation on the markets. That's next. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This week we saw a deluge in bond issuance with a record 21 deals on Monday and nearly $80 billion in new issuance over the course of a short week. Our roundtable of Sonny Beschloss of Rock Creek and Rick Reeder of BlackRock have stayed with us. So, Rick, at what point do we get nervous that companies are buying this much money? You know, David, I, mean, I think, quite frankly, if you said to me, what are the top stories of the week? I actually think the amount of digestion of, of, of product was extraordinary. I mean, the amount of investment-grade credit supply that's coming to the market, we're going to get a, you know, roughly $150 billion this month. The amount of high-yield supply that's coming to the market that just keeps breaking records, the amount of treasury supply that keeps breaking records. By the way, equity supply, it's why it put, it puts into perspective. Why, why I always find the irony of, you know, keep talking about is the Fed going to taper 15 to 20 billion a month of treasuries? We're getting 150 billion of investment grade supply. But the market has an incredible receptivity to all this paper. And it's because I think people underestimate that, A, the demographic condition that we're in, the liquidity condition we're in. And it's actually not enough assets for pension funds, for insurance companies, for international investors at the right yield today. It's part of why I talk all, uh, uh, quite a bit about the crowding out dynamic of central banks. There is extraordinary amount of demand. The interesting thing this week, you saw the ECB pulled back, as you said earlier, on their buying. What did rates do? Rates moderately rallied on the backside of it. We don't need that additional buying. The system can absorb amazing amounts of, of product. And we're in a unique point in time that, uh, that it's not going to go away tomorrow. So I, anyway... I thought that was the biggest, the biggest story of the week is just watching all of this product. And you know, gosh, we were, you know, I think I think a lot of investors like ourselves have built up cash, anticipating the supply that's coming. And and boy, you saw that paper getting absorbed readily across markets this week. So, Afsani, as you know so well, I get nervous when we say it's different this time. I mean, normally I think when companies are borrowing that much money, the balance sheet really gets skewed, and there's a piper to pay somewhere down the road. Am I wrong? Is the world different in part because of the demographic reasons that Rick just identified? Certainly the interest rates are low. Uh, but should we be concerned? As you invest in companies, do you take a hard look at the balance sheet? Certainly are looking at uh 
the credit rating of companies more and more and more as we're going along and looking at, uh, you know, the higher end more and more uh, for the very reason that you just said, David. The two things, it's obviously, you know, if you have such cheap money right now and there is an expectation of rates going up, no question that companies are going to raise, uh, raise bond issues, whether they need it immediately, whether they don't, they're going to do it right now. The other thing that is interesting and we saw also with Verizon and Walmart was that they're also increasing their issuance of ESG and green bonds. And, um, and those actually had higher yields, which surprised us, but that was also um, an interesting factor given the amount. And that also got absorbed very, very quickly and easily. So I think I agree very much also with what Rick is saying. Liquidity is enormous in the market and people are looking for assets across the board, bonds, equities, you know, real assets. Uh, and so that is pushing people towards, um, towards whatever size bond issues uh, are going out. They're getting absorbed even faster. In terms of concern, I think no question that you have to start looking at the quality of companies compared to, you know, in the beginning of this cycle or, or you know, beginning of, uh, of the liquidity jump. And, um, and I think everyone is doing that right now. So Rick, I want to come back to inflation. Maybe we've talked about it too much on this program, but I want to come back to that again. Ken Rogoff uh, from Harvard wrote a piece this week who said, we should be a little bit nervous because with all this leverage coming in, it might limit the optionality of the Fed if they do need to react to inflation, because if they start raising rates, it's really going to cause mischief. Are you concerned about that? Does it limit the options available to the Fed? I mean, you know, part of why I, mean, I, think, I think there's a really tricky thing at the Fed, and part of why I think they need to start moving. I think they do need, do need to build in some optionality. Listen, interest rates are going to stay low for a really long time. You know, I think you know you are getting more inflation working its way into the system. I think I don't really think inflation is going to create tremendous stress. I, however, I don't think we should eat, overdo it on, mon on monetary policy. But I think the Fed needs to be thoughtful about. So think about the, you know the tailwinds we talked about that are in the economy today from all the monetary policy stimulus, all the fiscal policy stimulus, and we're going to get more. We can debate the size. We're going to get more fiscal policy stimulus. And you think about cash on hand that companies, the wherewithal for them to spend. The Fed's in a tricky spot. If you you know when we look at the next Fed meeting, you look at their expectations of where interest rates are going to be in 2023, 2024. The expectation is that they're going to be raising rates in 2023-24. Now is when you have the tailwind. The economy could very well slow two years hence. And then you're, the Fed's going to be in a position where, gosh, now we've got to raise rates uh, when we don't have those series of catalysts driving economic growth. So part of why I think that the Fed needs to build some optionality today is uh, you've got all these tailwinds. You know growth is going to be durable. You know hiring is going to be durable when you see those sort of indicators in surveys and, and so build some optionality. And I think you're seeing this. We talked about the ECB, we talked about bank, you know, bank of Canada, the Bank of England, the Bank of Korea, pull back a bit on emergency policy because you do need to be thoughtful about future optionality. Uh, so, Afsani, give us some investment advice here. <laughs> where are there options, where, where is there return to be gotten? And, and given all the liquidity going on, that drives down returns typically. Where, where are there opportunities out there to get return? So, I think uh, on the negative side, we just talked about bonds, I think, and you asked about credit. So, those are probably areas you want to be really careful about on the high yield side. And Rick knows about that a lot more than anybody else. Um, on the positive side, again, I think because of what we just heard from Rick, that huge amount of liquidity, there will be a lot of pressures 
on the equity markets, but equity markets, certain parts of them, uh, particularly better companies with better balance sheets, I think will still be desirable to people. And then moving on, uh, it, uh, Europe probably is a really interesting place because they've been behind us. Uh, and as they are getting out of uh, the same pressures as we just talked about, Europe, European equities will be also very interesting. Last but not least, obviously, um, as I've said before, we still think that the biggest opportunities are in that intersection of technology with the education and health and uh, climate-related property, tech, all those kinds of things as our lives are getting changed. So, Rick, same question to you. You probably put more money actually to work than anybody I know, not to take anything away from Sonny, but you have an awful lot of money you put to work. Where are the opportunities that you're looking at? I mean, I agree with virtually everything Sonny said. And, and, uh, from, listen, I don't think the equity market is too high. I actually think, I mean, there are a number of companies. There are, you can find some equities that trade at too high a multiple. But boy, I, you know, when you look at companies throwing off the sort of free cash flow that they're throwing off, the uh, the earnings uh, power that they're throwing off today, I mean, we find a lot of companies throwing off 20, 25%, 30% return on equity. And their multiples, you know, in that environment, when you're long that much cash, you can do M&A, you can do CapEx, you could do R&D. Well, I don't think the equity market in aggregate is too high. What I do worry about a little bit is we talked about there's not a lot of in quality fixed income, there's not a lot of value. But what happens is everybody shifts to one side of the boat, which can create, you know, some tricky dynamics, which is something that, that we're keeping an eye on. Thanks to Rock Creek CEO Afsani Beshlas and Rick Reeder of BlackRock. Coming up, we reflect back on what happened 20 years ago when Wall Street and the nation were attacked on 9-11 with Roger Ferguson, who was the Fed vice chair who led the response of the financial system to the crisis. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. America heard the news as it was going to work, going to school, or just waking up. An airplane is reportedly has crashed into the World Trade Center. That is a live shot. 17 minutes after the first plane hit the World Trade Center's North Tower, a second plane hit the South Tower. President Bush was in Florida visiting an elementary school. His chief of staff leaned over and whispered, America is under attack. A third plane crashed into the Pentagon. A fourth plane appeared to be heading to Washington, but it crashed in Pennsylvania after passengers and crew tried to regain control from the hijackers. By then, the FAA had taken an unprecedented step. Every airline in U.S. airspace was ordered to land at the nearest airport. Three days later, President Bush went to ground zero. What became known as the global war on terrorism was about to begin. I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. Wall Street never opened on 9-11. The open was delayed after the first plane struck and then canceled after the second plane crashed. Markets wouldn't open until the following Monday. It was the longest shutdown since the Great Depression. Once trading resumed, there was a massive sell-off, the biggest one-day loss in the history of the New York Stock Exchange. The Dow Jones Industrials were down 14%, but by early October, stocks were back up to where they'd been the day before the attacks. Almost an entire generation has grown up since 9-11. 
On this 20th anniversary, many will join those who can never forget that day and remember the nearly 3,000 people who were lost. When the planes hit on 9-11, Roger Ferguson was serving as the vice chair of the Federal Reserve, and he was the only reserve governor on duty in Washington. So it fell to him to fashion an immediate response to something none of us had ever seen. We're delighted now to welcome Roger Ferguson back to Wall Street Week. Thanks for being with us, Roger. Take us back 20 years now. I know you've thought about it a fair amount. Uh, what did you face? What did you do? You know, as you said, uh, the context was confronting in real time a set of circumstances that none of us could ever have imagined. The good news was in some ways my wife called me at about nine o'clock or so uh, to let me know that something was going on. Um, I saw the second plane go into the second tower and knew immediately that uh, there was going to be chaos uh, in and around Wall Street. Obviously, I didn't foresee you know, the eventuality of the towers falling. But my first step, uh, literally at about 9, 10 or 9, 15, was to call a woman named Louise Roseman. Not a household name, but she was responsible for reserve bank operations and for payment systems. Um, and you know, I worked with her and immediately at 9.44, we put out a statement, the first of several statements that we made on that day, um, uh, that indicated that um, something called Fedwire was operating and it would stay open uh, as late as necessary for orderly transitions. Now, for the average person, that wouldn't mean very much. For individuals in the financial markets, it meant that the uh, veins, the arteries, the plumbing of the financial payment system was still operating, which was critically important for moving payments around, which was the most important thing. Now, so after that, uh, the next step was to say, gee, um, particularly once we saw the towers fall, um, what's the Fed's reaction gonna be? Um, and what we did was convene a discussion. Um, I had a statement all prepared that was very brief. Uh, and that second statement said, and this was for the public, that the Federal Reserve was open and operating, sentence one and sentence two, uh, which was more for the technician, uh, that the discount window would be available. So what did that mean in normal speak? Open and operating is pretty clear. Uh, what it meant in the second part was um, not only was the uh, payment system, the, the veins and the arteries working, but that we, the Federal Reserve, were prepared to pump the lifeblood, the liquidity uh, into that system to keep it functioning. In times of crisis, we draw upon what we know, what we understand. Uh, how fortunate were we in the country to have had you particularly in that position? Because your background actually had had something to do with the payment system. You knew the plumbing, as you just put it, pretty well, perhaps better than others might have. I think it's a fair statement. This is not a reflection on me because I quickly point out that, um, you know, the first lesson of this was it seemed mattered. But in this case, it actually was true. Uh, I had spent a fair amount of my time on the Fed, not just thinking about monetary policy, but thinking about these issues of how the payment systems uh, operated. I think, frankly, I was the only governor who had ever gone to see one of the least glamorous parts of the Federal Reserve, which was a process of, uh, of clearing checks overnight. You know, I went at you know, 12, 30, 1 o'clock to actually uh, see that process. And so I had, in fact, uh, spent a lot of time uh, before and during our period at the Fed trying to understand the intricacies of uh, this back office activity, the plumbing. Uh, that was the central issue of the day. Roger, thank you so very much for being with us on Wall Street Week. That's Roger Ferguson. He's the former president and CEO of TIAA. 
Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard, as Wall Street Week continues on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to conclude the week as we always do with our special contributor here on Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, thank you so much for being with us. One of the big developments, I think, of the week really had to do about COVID in so many different ways. But one of them was President Biden speaking to the country late in the week, really setting out a fairly extensive program to sort of almost do a reset on our attack on this pandemic. What do you make of what the president is proposing? I think he did the right thing. Uh, I think this is going to be with us in very serious ways for a very long time, unless we get the vaccination rate up. And what he did is necessary to get the vaccination rate up. I think it's supported by the vast majority of Americans, and I think it will be accepted uh, ultimately by most other Americans. This is like fluoride in the water. This is like the tests that our kids have to take to go to camp or uh, go uh, to school. This is like going through security at airlines. A more complicated and dangerous world requires things that didn't used to be required. And this is an example uh, of that. And we are struck that he's doing it right now. Uh, Two years from now, it'll be hard to imagine a world where there haven't been uh, vaccination uh, requirements uh, good for uh, the administration. I do think that there's a crucial dimension of all of this, which is what's happening globally that is still not getting enough attention. And this has been something I've been focused on for a long time, leading up to uh, the G20 with our panel uh, on that. We need much more global vaccination. We need much more uh, preparation for the next uh, pandemic. And this is the biggest vulnerability for our national security from the rest of the world over the next decade. That the virus mutates, that the virus takes a new form, that a different pathogen uh, comes along and that we are not ready. That is the, by far a greater risk of Americans losing their lives prematurely from a foreign threat 
relative to military conflict, relative to terrorism, even for the next few years, relative uh, to climate change. And we just need a major effort uh, to stop uh, this threat. Laurie, another significant set of developments over the week has been what's been going on in China and what we're now calling disorderly capital from Beijing. They call it disorderly capital as they continue to clamp down in various parts of their industry. At the same time, President Biden now has reached out to President Xi. They've had a long conversation, although I do note I don't think we have a China policy yet under the Biden administration. What do you make of China? How big a problem is it for the U.S. economy and for, for U.S. business? Look, I, I think the the glory days of doing business in China and getting rich for most American businesses were never fully there. And to whatever extent they were there, I think that's going to be very attenuated going forward. The predictability and of a Chinese business environment is not anything that anybody's going to be able to rely on for quite a while after the magnitude of the sudden uh, changes. The, this is surely going to have implications in terms of predictability, in terms of reliability of enforcement for any idea that the Chinese currency or some Chinese digital currency is going to be a threat uh, to the dollar. And we need to understand that what's happening in China is not mostly about us. It is about the imperatives of uh, cohesion in an extraordinarily complex and very rapidly uh, transforming society. So what we need to do is take the temperature down, demand uh, less, set our most uh, crucial priorities, insist on our uh, core interests, which cannot be every concern uh, that we have, and have a pragmatic uh, relationship with uh, China. It would be a grave mistake if we were to seek across-the-board confrontation uh, with China. Larry, you mentioned the temperature with China. Let's talk about the temperature with inflation back here, something we've talked about pretty much every week here, your concerns about inflation. I see some other people are starting to echo what you said. In fact, we had Ken Rogoff. You pointed out in your tweet, Ken Rogoff wrote on this uh, for Project Syndicate, saying there are some parallels actually with the 60s and 70s, including even our withdrawal, disorderly, I think it's fair to say, withdrawal from Afghanistan, what happened in Vietnam, what happened with productivity, various aspects. How concerned should we be right now that we could actually have a repeat of the 60s and 70s? Look, I, I don't think we're anywhere close to the kind of uh, Carter-era double-digit uh, inflation. But I do think we're in very serious danger of repeating almost all the mistakes of the 1960s and early 1970s. I'm particularly, you, you mentioned rightly, David, the parallel with uh, Afghanistan and Vietnam. There's the parallel with an ambitious progressive administration also facing national security uh, challenges. And there's a parallel in a growing chorus of voices saying that accepting more inflation because you've gotten more inflation is the lesser of evils 
and that you should just accept more inflation and promise that eventually you will stop it. And that I think is in some ways the deepest of parallel. And so as I see more and more economists starting to say, well, if the inflation target moves from 2% to 3%, then uh, that'll, be, that'll be okay. We can't risk doing anything that um, might hurt uh, the economy. That I think is setting us up for some very substantial difficulties uh, down the road. And finally, Larry, we're marking, of course, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on the United States. And it's a time for reflection about what happened 20 years ago, but also a time to think about what we've learned in the 20 years in between. What do you think we've learned? David, I, I'm going to say something different than a lot of the commentary, which emphasizes the various successes of our response. And I don't disagree with any of that. But I remember asking a very wide range of experts and knowledgeable people uh, in the aftermath of 9-11, what they thought the prospects for terror attacks were over the subsequent period. And I don't think you could have found anyone in the fall of 2001 who would have expected that we would have been as successful in avoiding terrorist attacks in our country and successful in avoiding terrorist attacks in uh, our allies as we have been. And I think all of us uh, who are not uh, directly involved in national uh, defense and national security owe thanks to uh, those who have worn uniforms, those who have uh, protected us, those who have mounted uh, the necessary uh, investigations. And that's a perspective that we need to have, even as we do recognize the uh, many mistakes uh, that we have made. Okay, Larry, thank you so very much. That's our special Wall Street Week contributor. He's Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. Once in a lifetime, or, or maybe not, 20 years ago, our world was rocked in a way we knew would never happen again. Those of us old enough to have followed what happened on 9-11 experienced a shock to just about every part of our world. An unprecedented attack on innocent civilians on U.S. soil, symbols of U.S. commercial and military power destroyed or burning, and most of all, the loss of family members and friends, including three of our colleagues right here at Bloomberg. The financial system was rocked to the core, with the stock exchange shuttered and stocks plummeting. At the time, we knew we would never see it happen again. And we were partly right, but partly wrong. Because over the last 20 years, once-in-a-lifetime events have happened more often than once in our lifetime. From the great financial crisis of 2008 to the collapse of economies and markets when the pandemic hit in 2020. George Santayana was surely right that history does not repeat itself. We have not seen more commercial airliners crashing into office towers, but it does rhyme. The good news is that we've proven more resilient than perhaps we knew. Certainly, our financial markets have rebounded faster than we'd expected. But there are two ways in which things may be truly different this time. First, 
The risks to our systems this time may not be physical, they may come from cyber. And we haven't really seen how resilient we are to a massive cyber attack. And second, 20 years ago, the nation came together to respond to the 9-11 attacks. At least for a while, we put aside partisan divisions and united to confront a common enemy. This time, a virus is proving far more deadly than the hijackers of 9-11. But it's dividing us rather than bringing us together. As we make questions of vaccinations and wearing masks, political symbols rather than ways of defending ourselves. We're far from done with the latest defense of our homeland. The question is whether we can overcome the risk of this time without uniting the way we did last time. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.